I'm going to start in Matthew 27, verse 62, and I'm going to take us to 28, 15. Let us hear the gospel. Glory to thee, O Lord. The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said, while he was still alive, After three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers, go, make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He's not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings! And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while, you were, while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Praise Christ for his glorious gospel. Praise be to thee, O Christ. Please be seated. Allow me first to pray that prayer we pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. Yeah, all right, one one answer. Happy Easter all. Happy Resurrection Sunday. I say this often enough, but of course we celebrate the resurrection every Sunday. That is, after all, why we gather on Sundays to begin with. We could do nothing apart from the resurrection. We certainly wouldn't be wasting our time in church if it were not for the resurrection. Uh, But for such a moment in history, it is well worth hearing the story fresh every spring. And we just keep hovering in Matthew's gospel, so I figured why not stay there. Matthew affirms what all the other gospel writers say, that the women saw Jesus first. That's who he chose to reveal himself to. And what a gracious thing. He does not reveal himself to the crowds. He does not reveal himself to the powerful. He doesn't even start with his best guy friends. He starts with the women in his life. I just wanted to point that out first. It's not an original thought, but it's beautiful nonetheless. And it's not because they came here with 
great faith that Jesus would be waiting for them. They went there to anoint the body because nobody had the chance to do it on Friday. So it's not because of their great faith that Jesus shows himself. It's because of their love. I think it's because they not only stayed until the end when he was dying, they were also first in line to pay their respects on Sunday. They were the last to leave and they were the first to show up, and that's what love looks like. And Jesus honors that love by showing himself to them first, and he even lets them touch his pierced feet. All this while the other disciples were off moping and lamenting and drowning their sorrows and eating their feelings somewhere. But love is the difference. More on that in just a bit. Jesus doesn't show himself to everybody that morning. Unlike his death, which was on the front page of every magazine by the next day, we saw that on Friday, right? God was not subtle about announcing Jesus' death, right? But his resurrection remains a bit of a secret. Some of the women saw him. The disciples eventually saw him. We know that he spent 40 days making appearances. Luke and John tell all kinds of wonderful stories about it. He visits his friends. He eats with them, because that's what you do with friends. He even cooks for them on at least one occasion. We learn later in the New Testament that hundreds of people ultimately got to see Jesus before his ascension. But Matthew doesn't get into all that. He barely talks about it, and it's kind of funny. I barely noticed this before. Matthew goes almost directly from the resurrection to the Great Commission, with very little in the way of human interest stories in between. And for Matthew, that is full circle for Jesus' earthly ministry. He starts with Jesus on the mountain, giving the law and the Sermon on the Mount, and he ends with Jesus on the mountain, perhaps the same mountain, sending his disciples out to make more disciples at the Great Commission before he ascends into heaven. Except Matthew doesn't mention the ascension even. He's sort of content to let Jesus' commands ring in our ears. Almost as if to say, like, don't worry about what else Jesus did. Just focus on what he said. Go do what he said. And, And again, Matthew, I've said this many times, it's the most Jewish account of the gospel. He is focused on Old Testament themes. Jesus as the true Israel. Jesus as the true temple. Jesus as the new and better Moses. So Matthew leaps almost immediately from Calvary to the mountain in Galilee where Jesus gave some of his final commands. But I say almost immediately because there's one detail in Matthew's account that's unique to him and stands out. And it must mean something because other than the resurrection and the the Great Commission, it's the only other item he mentions here at the very end of his gospel in the final chapter. He, He actually sandwiches the resurrection with this other story. And... As a general rule, that's meant to get your attention, but you would would not surround, you would think, the biggest blockbuster event in world history, right? The resurrection, with such a tawdry story. But rather than give us some of the adventures of Jesus post-resurrection, Matthew instead bookends the resurrection story with the story of the guards at the tomb. And that's why I chose to read, read those parts, because Matthew apparently intends these things to go together. What stands out for Matthew, apart from the resurrection itself, was the cover-up. The conspiracy to bury the resurrection story. They couldn't keep the body buried, so they tried to bury the story. And that obviously stuck in Matthew's crawl a bit. 
Again, Matthew being Jewish, he's writing to a Jewish audience. Perhaps that's why this detail was so troubling for him. I think he takes it personally because the gospel of hope is being cut off at the knees by the very men who are entrusted to shepherd God's people. It's a disturbing story. It's also a cautionary tale because some things are always true. One of which being that no matter how good, no matter how religious, no matter how pious, no matter how intellectual and intelligent someone is, if they deny the resurrection, they ain't worth much. They're just part of a conspiracy 2,000 years old, a conspiracy to bury the story where the body used to be. That's interesting that Matthew gives this story such prominence. It's in the midst of a joyous story about the resurrection of the Son of God, and Matthew takes time to focus on the conspiracy. He doesn't take time to revel in the moments uh, when Jesus visited them in, in the upper room or anything like that. He, he gives no personal account of how he experienced the resurrection even. He doesn't talk about the first time he got to see him at all. Kind of peculiar. He gives only the perspective of the women and Jesus' enemies. And this tells me a couple of things. One is that Matthew is pretty mad about it. Uh, another is that this conspiracy must have had a following from the beginning because they say, it's true, I think, that a lie can get halfway around the world before truth even has its boots on. And I'm sure this lie had legs and Matthew was responding to the slander. But most importantly, I think God wanted this conspiracy in here because the same lie in various forms has been told from the beginning. And it was a clever conspiracy in a way from the very beginning. Most conspiracies... Most conspiracy theories, let's be honest, they tend to attract weirdos, right? People who don't believe in the moon landing. It was all done in Hollywood, you know. People who believe in Bigfoot or the Loch Ness Monster or UFO abductions and Area 51 conspiracies, JFK conspiracies. I mean, you know, you, you can name them all. And, and these are in a range of, of odd, right? And sometimes it's just kind of fun to indulge in conspiracy theories. I mean, it can be. I could almost talk myself into the Bigfoot thing, like, you know, just for fun. Why not, right? But Satan is no fool. He doesn't set this up as a fringe weirdo conspiracy. It has the veneer of respectability. Because after all, who are you going to believe? Professional soldiers, the religious elite, the most pious men in your community, or a handful of very emotional, dare I say hysterical, women. Now, of course, the specifics of the debate have changed, but the core issue has not. The central question remains, did Jesus get up that day or not? Because if he didn't, we're all wasting our time. We could have slept in today and every other Sunday. What difference does it make? But if he did, there's no excuse why church isn't full to overflowing right now and every week because it should change everything. Every other theological debate becomes irrelevant by comparison. Why bother listening to Jesus' teachings at all? What difference do his miracles make? What difference do the healings make? If in the end, he died and stayed dead like everyone else in the story is over, then why does it matter? And so from the very beginning, that's been Satan's line of attack. That's his M.O. He couldn't stop Jesus from getting back up, so he has spent the last 2,000 years sowing doubts about it. And this passage lays out two camps. There are those to whom Jesus reveals himself, 
and there are those who don't even want him to. It's not a question of the evidence. It's a question of the heart. Do they even want it to be true? Because nobody on that first Easter Sunday showed up at the tomb that morning expecting anything other than to find a body waiting there. Everyone was surprised at the sight of the angels and the empty tomb. They didn't see that coming. But while some received the news with gladness, others went into protection mode. The women, verse 8 says, left with fear, yes, but also with great joy. And this is even before they saw Jesus. But the guards and the chief priests start scheming, and that's because the resurrection is not something you can be neutral about. You either believe it or you don't because you refuse to. And make no mistake, that's why this conspiracy starts. This is not an evidence-based decision. I mean, gosh, these guys knew that God had something to do with this. They had the evidence of the guards. They had the testimony. But they deny the evidence. And the same is true today. Jesus' enemies are not indifferent to the resurrection. They are hostile. They have to be. There is no neutral ground. If the resurrection is true, it changes everything, so it needs to be false for them. The evidence is immaterial. The denial of the resurrection has never been about the evidence. From day one, it has been a willful conspiracy. And conspiracies take work to maintain. I've been meditating on it this week, that unbelief comes with a cost. And not just money, though in this case there was certainly money involved, but it, it requires vigilance and hard work and dedication to maintain the conspiracy of unbelief. Unbelief, frankly, is exhausting. And that is demonstrated from the very start in today's story. Even before the resurrection happened, Jesus' enemies are stealing themselves against belief, and they do this by requesting armed guards to protect, of all things, a tomb. I'll look at it again. The next day, that is the day after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said, While he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he is risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go, make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Okay, a couple things to notice. First off, I want you to notice that these religious leaders had the audacity to approach Pilate on Saturday. That's the Sabbath. This is the day of rest. And here they are, breaking the Sabbath, doing business by conspiring with Rome, who they don't even like, all to keep Jesus in the grave. This also says to me that they are worried. There's a certain fear here. They say they're worried about the, the disciples stealing the body. They would never admit that they actually feared Jesus might actually do this thing, that he might actually get up. But Jesus' enemies are aware of what Jesus said he would do, which is something that Jesus' followers seem so often to forget. <laughs> 
The enemies remember that Jesus promised to come back in three days. So they request a detachment of soldiers from Pilate. They want Romans to do this. They want professional killers, men that strike fear into the hearts of the people. And Pilate gives the okay. And basically what they set up here is a reverse honor guard, if you like. I know that they keep like an honor guard at the Tomb of the Unknowns in Arlington National Cemetery. I once watched a video about it. It's actually fascinating. There's like a whole room underneath of it where they prepare and like they don't speak to each other. It's like an amazing dedication it requires. But they do this so that they can march in front of the grave and they, they pay homage to the unknown soldiers who have died for our country. It's actually kind of beautiful. But this is the polar opposite of an honor guard. You could call it a dishonor guard. These guys are there to make darn good ensure that the dishonor would remain, that Jesus, the convicted and crucified criminal, would stay buried in disgrace. And Pilate also gives them the authority to seal the tomb, meaning it's essentially going to be locked. His imperial seal is going to be marking it so that no one could disturb the tomb without facing consequences. Call it the ancient equivalent of a death certificate. It just formalizes the obvious. It confirms that Jesus is in fact dead. He may not leave the tomb by Roman decree. So Jesus' enemies start the day with a full deck. The government officially says that Jesus is dead and must stay dead. The armed guards are there to say the same. The massive stone on the entrance is just icing on the cake. No one at this point should sleep better than Jesus' enemies. So you would think. Of course, the soldiers are in for a surprise. It says, Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb, and behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow, and for fear of him the guards trembled and became like dead men. just want to point out again that these are professional men. These are not just like schlubs that they cobbled together to go guard the tomb. Jesus' enemies bought the best. But after yet another earthquake, an angel descends, flashing like lightning, and with sheer brute strength, just one guy hurls the stone back, breaking the seal, and just for emphasis, he sits down casually on it. And we're told, understandably, that the guards shook in terror and may as well have been dead. They just start passing out all over the place. But it demonstrates once again that these guys have no excuse. They might not have seen Jesus at first, but they've clearly witnessed a miracle. Every one of them has fresh in his mind the strange earthquake from Friday. They might have gotten a clue at this point that something amazing is happening. And moments later, as the women are leaving Jesus, they see the soldiers retreating into the city. Jumping up to verse 11, while they were going, the women, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed, and this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. So the soldiers confess to what they have seen. They know that the tomb is open, at the very least, and they might have even seen someone coming out as they were coming to and escaping, as the women were talking to Jesus. They might have seen things. 
It sounds like they were sneaking away while he was still talking to the women. So the evidence is all there. But in the end, they take the money when it's offered and they spread the lie. It's kind of like the end of the movie, The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. The line is, when the legend becomes fact, print the legend. <laughs> so when the elders meet, they hear this testimony. That means they know the truth. But they would sooner pay off the guards than face the truth. And the soldiers would rather have the money than face the truth. And the governor would rather keep the peace than hear the truth. People prefer unbelief. That's a very sad truth. And it may sound strange to us, but the Bible confirms it again and again. People prefer unbelief. And they will pay any amount and go to just about any length to maintain it. Unbelief comes with a cost, and many people are more than willing to pay it. And it's no less true today than it was 2,000 years ago. It costs something to deny the resurrection. It takes work to maintain unbelief. It requires vigilance. You may need to set up a guard like the chief priests just to make sure that belief doesn't creep in while you're sleeping. You might even have to work on your day off to maintain that kind of vigilance. And I don't know if we appreciate always how hard unbelievers have to work to maintain the illusion of their own autonomy and independence. Because reality has a way of smacking you in the face. So you have to live every day enjoying the blessings God has provided all while denying him. It's not even biting the hand that feeds you, it's ignoring it. And this is why Jesus told the Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus that it was hard for him to kick against the goads. He doesn't say it's hard on me, Jesus. It's hard on Paul. Unbelief has to suppress the knowledge of Jesus, and that takes effort. It's hard to kick against the goads. Sometimes it requires money. Jesus' enemies are willing to lay down cold, hard cash to maintain the conspiracy. People may not recognize it as such, but that still happens. Money is really, it's, it's just a form of commitment. It's investment. And people will spend money on their unbelief because it is a commitment. They will invest their time and treasure into this world and into their philosophies because it's easier to suppress the truth when you distract yourself with amusements or when you continue investing your treasure in this world. When you invest everything in this world, it suppresses the hope of the resurrection. That's why Jesus says to lay up your treasure in heaven. But unbelief invests only in the here and now. And like every bad investment, whether it's your money pit of a house or a lemon of a car... The temptation is to throw good money after bad because the more you spend, the more you feel like you're obligated at this point. You have to stay committed to the project. You're too invested to let it go. And that's how Jesus' enemies feel about the conspiracy of unbelief. Unbelief requires lying to yourself and others because, again, Jesus' enemies had all the facts in front of them, but they choose the lie. Unbelief requires complicity because misery loves company. And so Jesus' enemies get together and decide on unbelief together as if strength in numbers can overrule the truth. Unbelief also requires, and in fact feasts on, 
fear. Everyone involved in this conspiracy is living in and controlled by fear. The soldiers fear Pilate. The religious leaders fear public opinion. But what all of Jesus' enemies have in common is that they fear man more than God. Why else would you take money to lie even after you saw the resurrection? Finally, unbelief requires spreading the lie. I don't know if you've ever noticed that unbelievers are often at least as evangelistic as we are. Even atheists, self-proclaimed atheists and agnostics. You know, for people who claim not to believe anything, they sure are eager to tell you about it. Unbelief wants converts almost as much as we do. And this, too, has been the case from the beginning. You'll still hear it now. Oh, Jesus was a good man, great teacher, cool guy. But there's no way he rose from the dead. That obviously isn't true. It's a lie. But this story, this conspiracy, has been spread among not only the Jews, but also the Gentiles to this day. Unbelief requires planning, scheming, and actively tuning out the truth. You have to want this kind of unbelief. Not for nothing does Paul say in Romans 1 that mankind suppresses the truth in unrighteousness. Unbelief is a conspiracy, and it is centered on the resurrection because the resurrection proves that Jesus was everything he said he was. It's what vindicated him. It's when he conquered our sins. It's when he's bringing his kingdom into a glorious new situation. It's the central event in scripture. It's the central event in human history. Everything else stands or falls with it. And so the enemy denies it and attacks it and mocks it and always has. But the fact is they've had 2,000 years to produce a body and they still haven't. Somehow we're supposed to believe that 12, no, 11, cowards and simpletons somehow outsmarted the Roman authorities, all the religious authorities, the entire city of Jerusalem, and with their leader dead, began a movement that is still going strong 2,000 years later. A bunch of fishermen. It's ludicrous. I've used this line before, but I love what Chuck Colson said about this. Chuck Colson did time for his involvement in Watergate, but he said, I know the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. Then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Every one was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured that if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. <laughs> You're telling me 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. He has a point. To deny the resurrection requires effort. It is a self-imposed blindness, and it comes with a cost. The biggest cost being, of course, that unbelief remains in fear. Look again at verse 5. Well, 4 and 5. For fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, not the soldiers, to the women, do not be afraid. There's no rest for unbelief. 
There's no peace. There's no joy. There's only conspiracy and a general agreement not to believe or bow the knee. It's a conspiracy, yes, but it's not the fun or amusing kind. It's actually pathetic. That's basically what Matthew is getting at. They know, but they cannot admit to knowing. Denying the resurrection is not even a rational position. It's a commitment to hopelessness. It's essentially a suicide pact. And that is unbelief in a nutshell. It has not really changed in 2,000 years. It is just as true today for your unbelieving friend who just can't accept the idea of a resurrected Lord. They have bought into the same conspiracy. And they may have their own little quirky details and variations on it, but they are essentially committed to the same narrative. Jesus may be a lot of good things, but he's not my Lord and I will not worship. They are invested in unbelief. But that's not the final word this morning. I assume you're here because you don't want to be a conspiracy theorist for unbelief. You're here because you want the resurrection to be true. And maybe you've struggled with doubts and fears along the way, but you want the hope of the resurrection, don't you? You welcome his resurrection. You want it to be true. And I'm here to tell you that it is true. The truth in this case is stranger than the fiction. He really did get up that day. And his first priority was to comfort and reassure his friends. That's what he does. I'm going to read once more Jesus' words of assurance here. So they departed quickly from the tomb, the women, with fear and great joy, and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. I love that because, you see, these women, they already trusted the angel's message, what what he said. They're heading back to tell the others like the angel told them to. They would have done that anyway. But Jesus can't wait. And he interrupts them on the way, and they are full of fear and joy. And Jesus says, erase the fear. This is a time for joy. Neither these women nor the guards were expecting Jesus to get up that morning. The difference is that the women welcomed the news. Why? Because they loved him. That's the difference. They wanted him back. And so Jesus leaves his enemies to go conspire and scheme and goes out of his way. Rather than to show them up, he goes out of his way to confirm the resurrection to those who love him. And he does it in broad daylight with a smile on his face. And ultimately, they go home in joy. Now, if none of that makes sense to you this morning, if that joy sounds like an alien concept and frankly strange to you, maybe you've been buying the conspiracy. Maybe secretly. Maybe you've never realized how invested you are in the lie. But there's hope for you, too. The good news this morning is that the kingdom is full of such people. Jesus is in the business of reclaiming rebels like Paul who kicked against the goats. If our Lord can defeat death and the grave, he can surely deal with your doubts and conspiracies. His resurrection isn't any less of a fact because you deny it. Facts don't care about your feelings. Do you want this hope? Then ask him for it. Talk to somebody before you leave today after service. 
Stop fighting him. Bow before him. Take hold of his feet. He doesn't turn people like that away. And if you've already embraced this hope, praise God. Go live like you believe it. Go enjoy without fear and run to tell your brothers and everyone else the good news. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Let's pray. Gracious God and Father, we thank you so much for sending Jesus. We thank you that he died for us. We thank you, especially this morning, that he is risen. He is alive and well, and he says, do not be afraid. What better word could we ask for? We thank you that it is true, Lord, and we pray that you would steal our hearts against this conspiracy of unbelief, how it creeps up on all of us. Help us to see through the lies. Help us to see how we are led astray, Lord. Expose it to us and confirm for us the resurrection, the way Jesus did for those women. And make us eager to share that good news with others. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Please stand and join me in singing the doxology. Praise God from whom.